in 2011, the elders of Mount Vernon, we went away and we asked a question, uh, where do we want to be in five years? The type of question you would, affect, you would expect uh, the leaders of a church to ask. And we talked that year about growing in evangelism and in missions. We talked about uh, wanting everyone in the congregation to understand and be able to explain and articulate the, the gospel. Uh, we talked about a desire for there to be more disciple-making going on in the church. We talked about family ministry. We talked about church planting. And one of our most interesting conversations revolved around the 80-20 rule. Now, this is that principle that in any organization, 80% of the, the work is done by 20% of the people. So in a church, you might apply that to financial giving, to volunteering to serve with the children, to uh, participating in events outside the Sunday morning service. And basically, everyone is told that the 80-20 the rule cannot be broken. And yet, you know, we're not any old organization. We're a family. We're the church of the living God. We have the Holy Spirit. We're the body of Christ. And so recognizing that theological truth, a number of years ago we said, well, I'm not sure the 80-20 rule applies to the church of the living God. And so now over time, originally it really was like break the 80-20 rule. And over time that idea uh, morphed into let's build a culture of of generosity at Mount Vernon. So this year, we are paying special attention to this particular culture that we want to see at play, growing in this church. If you've been reading The Perspective, which is our monthly uh, newsletter, monthly journal, you can find it in paper copies and uh, PDF versions. But every article uh, all year long, has been about one aspect of generosity. So just this month, Dustin wrote a great article about how to be generous with your mind. So if you've ever wondered that, if God's given you a mind, how can you be generous with it? Well, Dustin has some very practical ideas for you, so thank you, Dustin, for, for writing that. Now, for the next couple of weeks, though, I want to, to preach about generosity. Now, here's my working definition of generosity. Generosity is being joyfully open-handed, right, open-handed with what you have for the sake of those you love, family, church, community, and world, because as Christians, we're, we're called to love all in that list. Now, I'm tempted to just now run off and dig into all the ways that you should grow in generosity. And I could just go immediately into ways that you need to examine your life. Where are you not being generous and where can you do more? But I fear that that would not be helpful. It would be like, or it could be like, depending upon where you are, it could be like building a, a house without a foundation. Right? The house without a foundation might stand for a few weeks, maybe even a few months, but eventually the ground's going to give in, the walls are going to crack, the the roof is going to fall to the floor if there's no solid foundation. So, maybe in a sermon or two, I could convince you to do a little more, to share a little more, to give a little more, to, to be a little more generous. But my goal today is actually not to make you more generous, 
I want to help you think biblically and even theologically about generosity. I want to build a foundation. And this requires looking at God and looking at his gospel. And that means that this sermon, I don't want to say it's going to be a little more heady, but the application might not be as obvious for the most part because I'm trying to help us see how the Bible presents our God as a generous God. Now, our key text is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Romans, if those of you who are just in the Romans class, I was in the class on conscience, but if you were just in the Romans class, I trust you heard that Romans is the Mount Everest of Paul's letters, maybe the Mount Everest of all the books in the Bible. Well, if that's the case, this verse 32 is the flag at the top of Mount Everest. Verse 32 is this triumphal declaration of, of God's work. He did not spare his own son. And it's a, a dramatic promise of God's un, ongoing work. Well, how then will he not graciously with him give us all things? Now, to understand what Paul means by all things, you simply need to look at Romans 8. Right? What we don't want to do is cut one verse out of the Bible, tape it on our bathroom mirror, and then convince ourselves that all things somehow means winning the state tournament, getting a promotion, or being given a brand new car. That is a bad way of understanding or reading the Bible. That would be a mistake. All things must be read in context. So very quickly, in Romans chapter 1 through 7, Paul works through both the plight and the promise of, of Christianity. The, the plight is the fact that we are all born in sin, unable to serve and please God. That is how we come into this world. Left to our own devices, we would all perish without God and without hope. This is the plight of everyone. And the promise of Christianity is nothing less than the good news that through faith in Christ, faith, belief, trust in his life, in his death, in his glorious resurrection, in his inevitable return, faith in that brings forward into your life everlasting life that begins like not way into the future, but begins today. It begins the, the moment Christ is your Lord, your Savior, by and through faith in Him. Now, Paul lays all of that out in Romans 1 through 7, and then chapter 8 becomes something of an exclamation point to all of that. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who are in Christ Jesus. All right, so like a prisoner freed from a lifetime sentence. That's the idea picked up in verse 1. Freed from bondage to sin. Right? Freed from, from having to prove your own righteousness. Freed from hell itself. And, and what does this freedom look like? Right? What does the Father give that prisoner who's been set free? Well, the Father gives you the, the Holy Spirit so that you can be alive and walk every day in holiness and in joy and in life itself. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 11. 
If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. The Father gives you the spirit. The Father gives you a a new family by adopting and calling you his, by giving you the privileges of, of the firstborn son, Romans 8, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Father promises not only that, He promises to give you future glory, including but not limited to the new heavens and the new earth where all your sin will all be a thing of the past. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And if that's not enough, the Father gives you help in prayer for those moments when you really can't figure out what to say or, or how to pray. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings to deep for words, and the Father gives us assurance that every trial we endure will be used by him for our ultimate good, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, and, and in your darkest moments, when for whatever reason you are tempted to think that God has abandoned you, Right, that this promise of assurance is not for you, the Father gives you the reminder that His love for you, for the Christian, is as strong as steel. Romans 8:38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our our Lord. Right, and that takes us to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? All things, all these things that I just mentioned to you in just like three minutes, packed into Romans chapter 8. Yours, guaranteed for everyone who has turned from his sin and trusted in Christ. And so, from, from that verse, really, but really beyond the verse, I've got two questions about generosity that I want us to think about today. First, must God be generous? Must God be generous? And then second, how is God generous? Must God be generous? How is God generous? Here's the first question. Must God be generous? Now, in one sense, the answer is no. In one sense, the answer is no. And this can be hard to hear. But God was under no obligation to save you. He was under no obligation to save me. No obligation to love you. No obligation to love me. No obligation to call you, to justify you, to do good to you. Verse 32 asks, will he not graciously give us all things. And that word graciously could be 
and sometimes is translated freely. Freely, meaning he didn't have to do it. God was not required or forced to care for you. He did it freely. He did it simply because he, he wanted to. Nothing outside of God put pressure on him to save you. He did it freely. When December rolls around and it is time to start thinking about Christmas gifts, I don't think about them prior to December. Sorry, Dean. Um, maybe you'll make a list. And that list will include people that you, you want to give something to. A parent, a spouse, a, a kid, a close friend. But, but maybe, just maybe, you have a few have-tos on that list. Your cousin from Omaha, who's going to be staying with you over the 25th. I'm not saying you don't love your cousin, but probably if he wasn't in town, he might not be getting a gift on Christmas morning. You, you feel like it's appropriate to give him a gift. It's necessary to give him a gift. You wouldn't be giving freely, though. You wouldn't be giving without constraint. There's something outside of you, the circumstances of your cousin's schedule that have lobbied you to be generous. It's not that way with God. He was under no obligation to send his son, no obligation to save anyone. There was nothing in us that deserved his attention, that warranted his affection. Passages like Ephesians chapter 2 make this so abundantly clear when you really come to grips with who we were outside of Christ, or if you're not a Christian, who you are right now outside of Christ, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. By nature, in our essence, in our heart, unworthy of God's love because our very identity is one of wrath deservers. All right, again, not the Hallmark greeting card you're probably going to be getting or giving out. But that's, that's the Bible. It's it's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, where he makes it so abundantly clear that, especially for those who might be thinking that, that the Jewish people have a leg up on holiness because, you know, they were granted the law, Paul corrects them. He says in chapter 3, verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks, now that is to say all, the world, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, passages like the ones I've just read not only do they describe our fallen, 
human condition, but they drive home the point, and this is why I'm bringing them up this morning, they drive home the point that nothing in us would have caused God to think, that person deserves my care. I must lavish my attention on her. I must give my affection to him. There's nothing in us that warrants such care. And so, relatedly, it's helpful to remember or perhaps to know if it is the first time that this truth has been said to you, that, that God does not need us. And this can be hard to grasp, especially when we are so conscious of our own need. We need water to hydrate us and, and food to fuel us. We need love from other people to encourage us. We need shelter from the elements to protect us. I could go on and on and on. We're needy, really, in, 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 in every possible way. But God is not like us. Acts 17.25, He is not served by human hands as though He needs anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In Job 41.1, God asks the question, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is, is mine, God says. Isaiah 40.13, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him, shows God his counsel? Right, God, I've got a few ideas about how to run the universe. Whom did he consult? Like, God did not hire Anderson Consulting to figure out how to get this job done. And who made him understand? God didn't go to college. These verses all teach us that God is, is independent, independent. But not the way, or not simply the way that someone who lives alone in his home is, is independent. I mean, you may think, you know, independent living. Humanly speaking, there's no such thing as independent living. You're dependent upon the gas company. You're dependent upon the water company and so forth and so on. But, but God is completely independent. He needs nothing outside of himself to thrive or even to, to be. And this is why when Moses asked God his name, God says to him, I am who I am. God's very name communicates simply, God is. There's a, there's, a, there's a great book with the title, The God Who Is. How different this is from you and me. We have a last name, right? Sometimes it's called a family name. And it, it's a name to express where we came from, who fed us, who cared for us. So, I'm not just Aaron, I'm Aaron Menikoff, and that name Menikoff tells you my, my family, where I came from. If I were in Russia, I would be Aaron Beryevich Menikoff to say I'm the son of Barry, to make it very clear I'm not independent. Not only am I in the Menikoff clan, but I'm a particular son of Barry, right? And I'm Aaron Menikoff. My name needs that modifier so you understand me, so like don't go Beyonce and Prince on me. Right? That, that, that second name is good. Right? Be humbled by the reality of your need for a, a family name. But God needs no modifier, no descriptor, no explanation. 
He simply is who he is. And when we read in Romans 8.32 that God graciously or freely gives us all things, well, let that word graciously sink in. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. So to the question, must God be generous, the answer is, in a sense, no. All right, but I said in a sense, didn't I? Must God be generous? Well, in a sense, yes. Now, what I'm about to say may seem a little bit strange, perhaps even a bit abstract. It's important, though. God cannot change. He is unchangeable. Go back to his name. I am who I am. His very name communicates something of his unchanging nature. He is always I am. For him to be more tomorrow would mean that he was less yesterday. And God cannot be greater or lesser than himself. God is God. He is unchangeable. Theologians use the word immutable. God doesn't mutate. He doesn't change. And the fact that God does not change is the clear teaching of Scripture. Psalm 102, verse 27 the foundation of the earth will perish, but not God. He is and remains the same. The same. Malachi 3.6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Right? God promised not to destroy Israel completely, how can they be sure God will keep his promise because God does not change? He is immutable. I was watching an episode of The Amazing Race, and a few teams uh, formed a little uh, pact to work together against some other teams, and uh, they literally put their hands together in the circle, and one guy says, you know, my word is my bond. And then a little bit later, the stronger team realizes they're being slowed down by these weaker teams, and so they're out of the pact. And the next day, the next leg of the journey, this, uh, this promise to be a, a team is blown up. Why? Why do they not keep their promise? Because they change. Because people change. It's why people are not trustworthy. We are mutable. We're changeable. God is not. God does not change. Now, what does this have to do with generosity? God didn't wake up one day and say, I think I'll be generous. He didn't wake up one day and say, you know, it's been so boring for like three trillion years. I'd like something to do, so I think I'm going to come up with this great way to pour out my generosity on this people that I've made. No, if God is God, he never changes he can't become more generous, and so it must be the case that he has always been generous. He is currently generous, and he will always be generous. It must be the case that generosity is not merely what God did at Calvary. Generosity is who God is because he doesn't change. Stephen Harnock is a pastor who many years ago thought long and hard about the attributes of God. 
and he asked the question, what is God like? And he examined this idea that God is unchangeable. And he concluded that all the wonderful attributes of God are simply who God is. He put it this way, God is holy, happy, wise, and good by his essence in himself. By his essence simply means they get to the core. These attributes get to the core, the heart, if you will, of who God is. And we could add that God is generous by his essence. Back to our first question. Must God be generous? Well, well, no, if you mean must God be generous to you or any one of his, his creatures, no. But a resounding yes, if you're wanting to know if the characteristic of the generosity of God must be on display in God at all times. Absolutely, yes. Generosity is who God is. This is our God. Now, I, I said that there really wasn't going to be much application, but a quick word of application. When Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.15 to be holy as God is holy, that's what he says there. He's quoting from Leviticus. He says, be holy. He's writing to Christians, all right? So I'm, I'm speaking to Christians. If you're a non-Christian and you try to be holy, you're just going to fail. You, you, can't, you can't do it. You can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a gift given only to those who repent and believe from their sins and put their trust in Christ to save them from their sins so that you will no longer be identified as a child of wrath, but instead a child of God. But writing to Christians, Peter exhorts Christians to be holy as God is, is holy. And what, what Peter is doing is, is inviting us. He's commanding us, but inviting us to share in something of the character of God. He's telling us to run not just after God's goodness, but after God's unchangeable goodness. Harnock says we should imitate God in this perfection by striving to be immovable, immovable in goodness. And I would add immovable in generosity. We trivialize, we trivialize God when we boil down generosity to giving a little more money to the church or spending a little more time at volunteer work or spending a little more time discipling a young Christian. The point is not for you to do a little more because you feel like it's the right thing to do. The point is for you to see and marvel at the God who is, the God who never changes. The God who is, by virtue of his own existence, generous beyond compare. Immovable in generosity. To be holy like God is holy is to be immovable in generosity. You might be asking the question, well, if God is always generous but not obligated to be generous to them whom, those whom he has made, well, how was God's generosity on display prior to the existence of his creation? That's a great question for you to talk about at lunch. Moving on. <laughs> All that was to answer the first question, must God be generous? Second, though, 
How is God generous? God is generous by sending his son to the cross. Romans 8:32. He who did not spare his own son. The father gave up his son, the one he loved, his only begotten son. And he did this for, on behalf of sinners like you and like me. He gave him up for a people. At Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified, at Calvary, the father gave up what he prized, what he loved. He did not spare what he cherished. There can be no doubt, no question that the Father loved the Son, that the Father loves the Son, that the Father treasures the Son. Matthew 3.17, upon Jesus' baptism, the Father says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. No other ever heard such a sentence from the mouth of God about him. But Jesus did. John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. No one else deserved the Father's confidence. No one else deserved for all things to be given into his hand, but Jesus did. Why? Because he's the Father's treasure. He's the one who has his Father's confidence. He's the one the Father loves. Matthew 11.27, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. In other words, the Father and the Son, they, they know one another. They are not just aware of one another, but there's a love shared between the Father and the Son that can never be separated by anything or by anyone. There is a oneness to the Father and the Son such that no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. They know each other because God is, is Trinity. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit three and one and one and three. John 12, 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. So if, if you're serving Jesus, you're following him, okay? Don't fool yourself. If you're, not, if you're not following Jesus, you're not really serving him. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If anyone serves Jesus, God the Son incarnate, the Father will honor him, that, that servant. Why? Because the Father so loves his Son that if you are a servant of the Son, the Father is going to honor you because of the one you're serving. Have you ever re-gifted a present that you received? Maybe you didn't want to spend money on your cousin from Omaha. So you went ahead and passed along a nice puzzle you received for your birthday. Cost you nothing. Maybe you didn't really like it. Puzzles are terrible things. <laughs> Nonetheless, you give it to someone that you love. Uh, perhaps it's not the best picture of generosity, right? Regifting. Now, there are other things that it's really good at, like stewardship, like A plus in stewardship. Generosity, I, mean, I don't know your heart, you know, could be an F. Maybe it's more like an A minus. I'm just saying it's not the best picture of generosity because it didn't cost you anything, right? What, what, what we have in Romans 8.32 is, is full and pure and costly generosity. God the Father took what he loved, 
more than anything and sent his son off to a painful death. He did not spare him, right? He did this fully aware. The father did this fully aware that this action of sending the son would lead to the accomplishment of his great plan, the praise of his great name, the salvation of a people whom God would make great. He knew all of that would happen, but God did not do it. The father did not do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did not spare what he loved more than anything. We can say God shows his generosity by giving up not just what he has, but he gives up what he loves, what he treasures for the sake of his people. Now we can say a little more. We can say that God is generous by giving up himself. All right, I need to be careful here. I need to be clear here. I need to be clear about what I do not mean when I say that God gives up himself. God the Father did not die on the cross. When we say God is three and one and one and three, we mean that God is one essence in three persons, and each person of the Trinity is God. However, as one theologian rightly put it, the Father is not the Son or Spirit. The Son is not the Father or Spirit. And the Spirit is not the Father or Son. Yet these are the one same divine being. And thus we say the Son, not the Spirit, and not the Father died on the cross. And with that in mind, don't lose sight of who Jesus is. He is truly man and truly God. He is, Hebrews 13, 8, the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. John writes about Jesus in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is the one in whom, by whom, and through whom all things were created, Colossians 1. And in Acts 20, 28, when Paul is giving his final words to the elders of the church in Ephesus, these parting words, he gives them this charge. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he, that is God, obtained with his own blood, whose blood was shed on the cross. The blood of God, the blood of the Lord. And all this leaves me, I have to admit, with more questions than I have answers. But this much I know, on the cross, God gave of himself. God gave up himself. This past few years, um, I have heard about some pretty remarkable acts of generosity. Uh, a couple of years ago, a commencement speaker told the graduating class that he would cover all of their college debts. That's like great graduation speech. Great graduation speech. Great gift. Example of, of generosity. Now, Google tells me, so this must be true, that Bill Gates makes about $4 billion a day. That's about, excuse me, a year. <laughs> so, so what I'm about to say is going to be such a downer. <laughs> it's just $11 million a day. All right, yeah, just that. 
which is about $450,000 an hour, which is about $127 a second. Now, to date, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have given away about $45 billion. That's generosity. That's, I mean, that's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of money. Have you heard of Warren Buffett's giving pledge? Right? Here's what he said. More than 99% of my wealth will go to philanthropy during my lifetime or at death. Now, Buffett goes on to say, my family and I will give up nothing we need or want by fulfilling this 99% pledge. And, and that's because when he gives the 99% away, he still has about a billion dollars. But I don't want to take anything away from the generosity, right? Like, great, that's a big gift. All these givers are, are giving. They're very, very wealthy. We need to give credit where credit is due. These are our high-impact gifts. But we all kind of smile because... Well, not only do we know about the widow and her might, which I hope we'll talk about next week, but as impressive as their generosity is, we, we realize because they have so much that their sacrifice is, relatively speaking, fairly small. It would be a, a different thing entirely if we'd heard that one of their children had been kidnapped, and they're very wealthy, of course, have always been very concerned about, about this reality, about someone stealing a child and and, and asking for a, a ransom. We would be very surprised indeed if the kidnapper didn't demand a check, but instead perhaps demanded a, a hand or an eye. I know it's grisly. And, and if that, that very wealthy billionaire said, yes, I'm going to give my eye, I'm going to give my hand for the sake of my child, right? we would perhaps be more surprised, more in awe than the giving of 99% of $83 billion. But yet, at, at one level, we would understand because, again, it's your child. You know, you love him. You love her. There's something about that child that warrants, that deserves you doing the, a horrendous thing to yourself for the good of, of that one. Well, as impressive as this generosity is, we recognize that when it comes to the Lord, we see something entirely different. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, before we were God's child, Christ died for us. Before there was anything in us that one might look at and say, wow, that's great. When we were still children of wrath, that's when God intervened. Not merely giving, if you will, a, a portion of his wealth, but giving up his very self. When there was nothing good in us, when we were simply miserable rebels, that is when God did not spare his own son for us. Again, he gave freely. He gave what he loved the most for sinners that he had no reason to love at all. God the Father gave what he loved most. At Calvary, God freely gave of himself. Hebrews 12 to Jesus, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Hebrews 12 to. I know that um, 
I know that this idea is one that is not uncommon to us. Uh, I grew up with Shel Silverstein, not really, but with his books. And um, I loved the poetry, and I loved the giving tree. Uh, I don't remember all the particulars, but, you know, there's a boy who grows up with a tree, and he plays in the tree. But as he gets older, he wants more than to play at the foot of the tree. As he gets older, his needs change. Sometimes he needs sustenance, and so the tree graciously gives of the apples. And again, I'm going to get all the details wrong, but sometimes he needs to take a trip, and the tree gives of his very branches so that the, 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 now the young man can build a boat and sail the seven seas. And as he gets older, he needs a home, and the tree cuts himself down that he might have lumber so the child could have a home. It's the giving tree, and we all resonate with that idea that giving is not about writing a check. It really is about giving yourself, and at some level, at some level, Shel Silverstein understood that, but from whence comes that idea? How do we as human beings understand what it means to really give of yourself? Well, the answer is the cross, where Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured excruciating pain, where the Father did not spare that which he loved and treasured the most, his own Son, for people who were still sinners. Let's agree that we should be generous. I care that you give faithfully to your local church. I want our church to not fall into that statistical trap of a minority of people giving faithfully to the work of the Lord. I care about that. I care that you volunteer faithfully to do the work of the ministry. I care that you serve the poor in your community, that you give of your time. Uh, it's not that I, I don't care about those things. I, I really do, but let's agree that you can't pay God back for what he's done. Let's agree that it would be ridiculous to think that our generosity could somehow earn God's favor or make us in any way righteous before God because when you compare our generous acts with God's generous act, there just isn't any comparison. Nothing you and I could ever do will ever compare to the generosity on display in the cross of Christ. And when you consider the depth of your sin and the magnitude of God's gift, well, the only appropriate response is awe and, and wonder. You are an amazing God. I can't even wrap my mind around you. And perhaps I should add the appropriate response is one of repentance and faith. If this is who God is, don't you want to follow him? You're never going to find a better master than this master who gave what he treasured the most for the sake of children of wrath, that they might become, according to his sovereign, sovereign pleasure, children of righteousness. If you are a Christian, God did this for you. And if you aren't a Christian, then consider placing your faith in Jesus Christ, even today, right now. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. Acknowledge your need. Acknowledge only the gift of God in Christ is strong enough and precious enough to free you from slavery. I love how Pat prayed a few moments ago. I mean, uh, something, Pat, like, I know you've done this this week. 
like Pat's reading our minds. No, he just knows our hearts. He knows we're sinful. We confess our sin and acknowledge that only the gift of God in Christ is strong enough and precious enough to free us from slavery to sin and death. So generosity is being joyfully open-handed with what you have for the sake of those you love. And within that definition, perhaps there needs some tweaking to be done. Generosity is being joyfully open-handed with what you love the most. For the sake of those you're having a really hard time loving. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality that you are God. You are who you are. You identify yourself as I am who I am or I will be who I will be. And Father, we would not begin to think that we can know everything we, there is to be known about you, but we're thankful for what we can know. We're thankful that we can know you are good, you are holy, you are righteous, and you are just. We're thankful that we can know that you are always opposed to sin and that you are always generous. And we pray that today we would find you to be our generous God by humbling ourselves and willingly receiving the kind gift who is Christ himself. We want to honor Jesus. We want to serve him, knowing that in your amazing providence, you honor those who serve your son Heavenly Father. Lord, before we would ever be a generous people, would you help us understand that you did not need to be generous to us, but you wanted to. And that desire is rooted in the fact that you are a generous God. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.